Hi, welcome to episode 640 of the Fantastic Forecast. I'm Dave Elliott, and I love this time of year. All the networks have their new Saturday morning lineups. Let's see what's on NBC. They've got a, a church show, the local news, the Today Show, and paid programming. I don't think any kids are going to want to watch that. Every week on the Fantastic Forecast, I'll be talking about a different issue of the Fantastic Four. Starting with issue 1 and going all the way to issue 18 of Fantastic Force. Today is Fantastic Four Volume 6, number 5, released in December 2018. Written by Dan Slott. So we've got the big triple-sized issue with the marriage of Ben Grimm and Alicia Masters. The front cover proclaims that this is a special 650th issue spectacular. And it is not. It is not spectacular. It's also not the 650th issue of the Fantastic Four. It's only the 640th. I should know. I did a podcast on every single one of them, one at a time. This issue has uh, three stories each with a different artist, plus some framing sequences by an artist, oddly enough, not credited. Which seems like a pretty big oversight to not credit one of your artists in such a big issue. The issue begins at the four-story headquarters of the Fantastic Four. I think I said last episode that it was three stories by accident. Located at 4 Yancey Street. I've always wondered about the zoning laws and how they must be related to the Baxter building. But this is a residential building for sure, No way are they zoned for whatever the Fantastic Four are doing inside. We see that Johnny and Wyatt are moving some of Alicia's statues out of the building to make room for the FF, as Sue moves in some of her boxes. So this is really happening. They're going with this. As the FF... This is the FF headquarters for the duration of Slot's run? A townhouse? Sue says uh, she's worried about the size of the place. But when she opens the door, she's surprised to see that the inside of the building is huge and Reed and Valeria have done some weird Doctor Who shit, using extra dimensions to make the inside bigger than the outside. Out of the blue, Sue asks, What has Franklin done now? And Valeria replies that it involves scissors, an electric razor, and hair dye. Sue is worried about the wedding pictures and she finds out that Franklin is in bathroom 27 and she needs to get there as fast as possible before he does anything. Reed is busy doing scientific stuff and when the phone rings, he hands it to Sue. Turns out it's Ben calling and he says, Susie, this is awkward. I was hoping Reed could build a robot so I could, um, practice on something for my wedding night. Holy smokes. Of course he needs practice doing something with a woman because, you know, he's totally a rock monster. And then he says, Oh, no, no, not like that. I meant, oi. I'll be right over, Sue says. I have no idea what that robot could be for. I'm sure Ben could practice whatever it is on Sue, since Sue looks exactly like Alicia, only with blonde hair. This brings us to our first story, titled change partners with art by the great Mike Allred why is he not the regular penciler of Fantastic Four that would be awesome so Sue forgets all about her son doing doing something awful to his hair and she heads on down to the Sunote School of Dancing 
named after longtime FF inker Joe Snow, who, as we all know, was not only one hell of an inker, but also an amazing dancer. And there she finds Ben Grimm. Ah, uh, he needed a robot to practice dancing with. So she quickly agrees to help, putting some force fields over her feet to protect them as she starts dancing with the thing. Ben mentions that he used to be good at dancing, and Sue says that she remembers, and this leads into a flashback. And I tell you, a Fantastic Four book that takes place early in their career before any kids, drawn by Mike Allred, I'm buying that book. We find Sue and Reed a few weeks before gaining their powers, working on the plans to the rocket ship. Gotta hurry, gotta beat them commies into space. Well, of course, at this point, I'm sure Bernie Sanders has already been to space. Ben arrives on a rocket sled, looking a little more handsome than usually drawn in his human form. On the other side of the fence are a group of girls and Johnny, but the girls seem to, they seem to be going crazy over Ben. Johnny's like, what does that lunkhead got that I don't got? Trust me, Junior, you don't want the answer to that, Ben replies to Johnny. Oh, is that an allusion to Johnny not being so well endowed? I think we figured out why Johnny's been such a failure with women. Ben mentions to Reed that he's worried about the ship's shields. They are barely acceptable. They seem to ignore Ben on the shields, and Sue mentions to Reed that he better not cancel any more of their date nights. But he's got to keep working. In the actual first issue, it was Sue who was the most gung-ho about beating the commies into space. Ben makes a move on Sue right in front of Reed. He asks her out, and Reed is like, that should buy me the time I need. Yes, that's very thoughtful of you, Ben. For some reason, Reed is not threatened by the idea of Ben taking his girlfriend out on a date. Huh. I wonder why. Please see the previous 639 episodes of this podcast. So next we see Sue and Ben out for dinner in a nice restaurant with a live band. They are dressed real nice and they talk for a bit about how clueless Reed can be. And then they get up and they dance together. She says to Ben that it's good to have a friend like him. So yeah, this ain't going nowhere, as we all suspected. The next page is just a page out of Fantastic Four number one. The four of them are talking about the rocket flight, Ben warning them of the shields, Sue calling him a coward, and then agreeing to go. And then we see this next same scene in, as in issue one, where they go into space, they get hit with cosmic rays, they develop their powers, and with most of them getting a pretty sweet deal, except for Ben who gets porked from behind by becoming a rock monster. And then we get to the end of the scene where they all put their hands together. Next, a flashback to a scene I've talked about many times on this podcast. The Puppet Master has a scheme to put a blonde wig on Alicia and trick the rest of the Fantastic Four because they're practically twins. However, in this retelling, they mention that stage makeup was also used, whatever that means. At no point does Reed or Johnny ever go, Hey Sue, why are you wearing so much makeup? And then at the end of the flashback, Alicia and Ben seem to have a moment where he promises to be here for you, which translates into, by associating with us, your life will be in constant danger, but I'll be here for you. And in another new scene, we see Sue trying to get Alicia and Ben together by buying a block of marble for Alicia to work with and having Ben carry it up to Alicia's apartment and then leaving quickly after Ben accepts an offer for a glass of lemonade from Alicia. This is pretty smart. If you're going to set your friend up on a date, and your friend is a rock monster, a blind girl is a pretty good choice. And then we get some kind of montage of Ben and Alicia doing stuff together, 
like she's making a sculpture for Ben. They're having dinner with Reed and Sue. And Ben takes Alicia to a petting zoo, which for some inexplicable reason, Mike Allred recreates the cover to the album Pet Sounds with the Beach Boys in the background petting goats. Ah, the Beach Boys. Some rock bands in the 1960s were into drugs, banging groupies, crazy parties, trashing hotel rooms. But the Beach Boys, oh, they love their petting zoos. In another scene, we see Alicia and Ben working with Clay together. Ah, oh, Patrick Swayze and Demi Moore eat your heart out, because this scene is hot. Alicia makes a bust of Ben's head, pretty good. Ben makes a bust of Alicia's head, not so good. Ben is also wearing a beret, which, good thing Alicia can't see it, it looks ridiculous. Ben makes a comment about them not using the Puppet Master's radioactive clay, and she makes the two busts kiss. And then, Ben and Alicia kiss for real. I'm not sure if she was joking, or is she really is she really mind-controlling Ben here? If it turns out that Alicia has been mind-controlling Ben all these years with radioactive clay puppets, I would be so thrilled. She is easily one of the worst, most boring, useless characters in all of comics. Her career sculpting superheroes and supervillains is incredibly illogical. Also, her so-called romance with Ben also makes no sense. If she's uh, some kind of crazy person who uses these clay powers to rape rock monsters, suddenly she's a lot more interesting. But I assume she's only joking here. In the next scene, Sue is getting Ben ready for another date with Alicia, giving Ben roses and tickets to a big band concert for their date. Ben says that Alicia does not like roses and prefers opera. He ends up telling Sue, Quit it! She's nothing like you! And then the flashbacks end, with Sue and Ben dancing in the present. Ben seems to be dancing well, and that is the end of the Mike Allred portion of the story. Next up, we go back to a framing sequence by the unknown artist, and back at 4 Yancey Street, Johnny has been looking for Reed and finally finds him. We learn that because of the Doctor Who style technology, they have twice as much room here as they had at the old Baxter building. You know, this technology has always troubled me in the Fantastic Four comic. Why doesn't Reed share this with the world? There are a lot of overpopulated places in the world where there's not enough room and in some cities people have to live like animals. Cities in India like Bangladesh, China, or San Francisco. In San Francisco, they put people on leashes and walk them through the streets like pets. Okay, maybe that's not an overpopulation thing. Anyway, this extra space dimension technology would greatly improve life on planet Earth. But Reed ain't sharing it. Always, one inherent problem with having a comic book character like Reed Richards, if he really existed, the world would be a drastically different place because of his technology. But it's not. Johnny tells Reed he needs to plan Ben's bachelor party. Reed says that Johnny would be the best person to handle that, which is true. Ben and Alicia arrive for what seems like a predetermined appointment with Reed. He takes a device and collects some blood samples from both of them. Reed says it's for security reasons, gotta make sure that everyone is who they say they are. For example, he's gotta make sure that Alicia isn't a scroll, unlike last time. Which is funny, as Johnny makes an embarrassed face. Alicia goes off to do whatever. Johnny tells Ben he's going to plan the bachelor party. Ben says he wants something small and tasteful. But Johnny has other ideas. He's going to plan a bachelor party for the ages. Well, unless the party involves Tom Hanks, it will not be a bachelor party for the ages. This brings us to our second story in the issue, 
Guy's Night Out by Dan Slott, with art by another favorite of mine, Adam Hughes. Seems like forever since I've seen him draw anything but a cover. The story starts with a party bus pulling up, and a sign uh, taped to the front of it saying, Storm Bus. Let's just hope that they don't get attacked by any X-Men villains while riding on the Storm Bus. Two of the guests on the bus are Peter Quill and Rocket Raccoon. They've never even appeared in the Fantastic Four before. How are they friends with Ben and Johnny? Maybe something over in one of their dozen comic books they have every month. If Rocket Raccoon is here, I'm totally expecting Moon Knight to make an appearance too. Okay, not really. Next, D-Man, Vance Astro, and Wondar the Aquarian arrive. Ouch! This is, this is really gonna hurt Moon Knight. D-Man and Wondar the Aquarian show up in the pages of the Fantastic Four before Moon Knight does. Wondar is like some old-school 1970s cult guy with pamphlets. And here, he has a pamphlet about the coming of Galactus. And then Spider-Man shows up, which is not much of a surprise. And then, we have a little crossover with the bachelorette party from the wedding special, with the girls outside waiting for Sue to arrive. Here, Thundra, also from the 1970s, is waiting along with the other women, but when she sees all the guys together, she's like, by all the seven hells, those are not fit for a Femizon warrior. Thundra requires more. I'll have what the males are having. I assume she wants to come to the bachelor party instead. The first place they go is to Madison Square Garden for a wrestling match, which seems like an odd place for a bachelor party. It's a UCW wrestling match, Unlimited Class Wrestling, which is wrestling for people with superpowers, which Ben once did, uh, did for a while. They announce Ben as a special guest, and he wastes no time in leaping into the ring to fight. There's a bearded Santa Claus looking guy with muscles, a weird alien creature with tentacles coming out of his mouth, and little wings, and a cowboy that looks like one of the village people, if the village people were performing in a bathhouse. After the ma match is over, Ben isn't feeling so well, so he is in the locker room getting looked at by a doctor. Doctor Strange, who confirms that Ben has a groin pull. Which is surprising, because I didn't know that Ben had a groin. Next, they head over to a bar for some serious drinking. I see that T'Challa, the Black Panther, is there. Luke Cage, Power Man, is there too. Thor, or someone who looks vaguely like Thor, I can't keep up who, about who's Thor anymore, is pouring beer from a giant wooden keg. Spider-Man gets up to make a toast to Ben and Alicia, which he's having a hard time remembering, and then he looks over at three big cakes. Bachelor party cakes, is that a thing? And Spidey's spider sense goes off. Next, out of the cakes pop a bunch of women. Oh, but don't get excited. They're from the Serpent Society, a group of snake-themed supervillains. Luke Cage asks Johnny why he hired them to come to the bachelor party. Johnny replies that they weren't dressed like that when he hired them, which... That makes no sense. How did Johnny end up hiring the Serpent Society instead of strippers? Are we supposed to believe that the Serpent Society works as strippers on the side? Also, are these women stupid? This is a collection of some of the most powerful male superheroes on Earth. They think that they can fight them? That's crazy. Finn says, I sure hope the girls' night out is going better than this. We see all the women at the strip club cheering. The mole woman hasn't arrived yet. Back at the bar, the serpent ladies are being taken away by the police, 
and Ben says he's ready to leave. But instead, he stays and plays some poker with the guys and Pudra. Soon the stakes are getting high. It seems like Thor now has an artificial arm. And Rocket goes all in and says, I raised Thor an arm. Really? Dan Slott can't come up with gags on his own? He's got to take a running gag from the movies? Soon, it dissolves into a game of strip poker. Wait, can you do that? Play strip poker at a bar? Oh, I'm sure at a gay bar you can, but why would they take Ben to a- oh, forget it. Doctor Strange isn't doing well, he's lost his shirt. And I don't think I've ever seen Doctor Strange's nipples before. Which is something I didn't think I'd be saying when I woke up this morning. Thundra, meanwhile, is cleaning up, taking all the clothes, and by the end of the night, she's the winner. In the next scene, we see Johnny inviting her to the wedding as his guest. Ben cuts in and says no, they're trying to keep the wedding small without all the superpower people. This enrages Thundra. She does not like being told what to do. She starts fighting with Ben. The bar is getting trashed, and Tony Stark hands the bar owner his credit card and says to put the charges on his card for all the damage. Later, after everyone is gone, Johnny's sitting outside alone, moping, feeling sorry for himself. Oh, his life is sucks so bad. Being a handsome, rich, famous superhero. Oh, it's such a drag. Ben asks what's wrong, and he replies that everyone in the group is married except for him. He feels like a perpetual bachelor. You know, I know what his problem is. You know, he could probably go see Hank Pym to get the solution. The story ends with Ben giving Johnny some words of encouragement, and we immediately go into the final story, Four Minute Warning, with art by Aaron Cutter, Marte Garcia, and Eric Arkinigia. Our comic book artist names getting harder. So finally we get to our third Fantastic Four wedding of all time. Reed and Sue in 1965, Johnny in 1987, and now a whopping 31 years later, Ben gets married in 2018. And where is the marriage, you might ask? A church in New York City, where all the supervillains can attack? No, we see a plane land in Benson, Arizona. Wasn't that an Eagles song? Standing on a corner in Benson, Arizona. The wedding party gets out of the plane. This group includes Rabbi Lowenthal. Ben being Jewish is one of those things that seems to pop up every 10 years. Why Arizona, by the way? Turns out Ben has family there. An aunt and an uncle. Who I think we've seen only once before. It's Aunt Petunia, a muggle who helped raise Harry Potter after his parents died. Okay, I think I'm looking up the wrong Aunt Petunia. I don't recall seeing her since the John Byrne run. I feel like googling her and see what she's been up to since. Turns out, she did make another appearance during the Mark Millar Brian Hitch run, where she was murdered by the Marquis of Death. I guess she got better. Or Dan Slott was too lazy to google her. Oh, I'm only doing a podcast, and I still took a few minutes to look her up. Maybe Dan Slott should do the same. Especially when he's writing the actual damn book. Jeez. Sue says, You haven't aged today. Actually, she's aged about 20 years. But she does look better than the last time Sue saw her, when she was dead. Ben gives his aunt a hug, and they get, off, they get to see the kids for the first time in a very long time. We finally see what Franklin has done to his hair. He's dyed it blue. That's exciting. In comics, you can often tell the characters apart only by the color of their hair. They should have done. They should have had Franklin dye his hair years ago, when he was hanging out with the also blonde Alex Powers. 
Aunt Petunia and Uncle Jake can hardly believe the kids are teenagers now. Yeah, hard to believe. Alicia goes over to Jake and asks him to walk her down the aisle. Really? Alicia doesn't have any male friends, like in the art world or anywhere, who can walk her down the aisle? I don't think she's even met Uncle Jake again before. Meanwhile, Aunt Petunia asks where Reed is, and this prompts a flashback from Sue's point of view. We see her poking her head into Reed's lab, asking him to get, get onto the plane, but he says he's too busy for that. Wow, at this point, Reed is acting like a giant colossal dick. So they came to Arizona without him. Oh, but then on the next page, the very next page, Reed arrives in the Fantastic Car. So what was the point of that? They're going to set up this mystery, is Reed going to make it to the wedding on time, but then literally three panels later, Reed is there, which is kind of pointless. Anyway, a little bit later, they set up a tent and some chairs in some barren desert wasteland, and they have a wedding. Uncle Jake leads Alicia down the aisle. I've always wondered why people do that at weddings, lead the bride down the aisle. Seems rather old-fashioned, but in this case, it makes sense. The rabbi starts the ceremony with a long speech, and this would be a great time for a supervillain to swoop in and do something awesome like kill Alicia. Instead, a booming voice fills the air, saying, People of Earth, heed my warning. You face imminent destruction. And up in the sky, it's not Galactus, but Doctor Doom projecting a giant image of himself off the atmosphere. He goes on to say, But fear not. For I, Victor Von Doom, shall face and vanquish this challenge myself. And he's not a threatening, he's not threatening the earth with destruction, but saying he's going to save it from destruction. And then we see Galactus, for real, showing up on earth, floating over the capital city of Latveria. What's wrong with Galactus? If he really wants to eat earth, why doesn't he just go land in Antarctica when no one's going to notice him? He's such an attention whore, that guy. Dr. Doom says that he can repel Galactus, and that if Reed Richards can do it, so can he. Ben thinks, his, that, thinks that his wedding is ruined because they'll need to leave right away. Alicia says that's fine, they can wait a little longer. But Reed, surprisingly, is like, no. He doesn't want to rush off and fight Galactus, which is unusual, but he pulls out a device. Oh, there's always a device. It's some kind of chronal displacement device that freezes time around them, so they have four extra minutes to wrap this up. He activates it and tells the rabbi he better get to it. So they proceed to exchange vows. Ben puts a little ring on her finger. Alicia puts a very big ring on his finger. And the rabbi says he can kiss the bride. And then he picks her up and kisses her. And then they put that piece of glass on the ground and Ben stomps on it. Which always strikes me as an odd tradition, but whatever. The wedding is over and the four members of the FF rush off in the Fantastic Car, leaving the kids behind. So that's good news. As they fly off, the Fantastic Car has a sheet hanging from it with a sign that says, Just Married. And that is the end of the issue. Which is so far my favorite issue in the Dan Slot run. I give it three stars. Of course, when you've got Mike Allred and Adam Hughes doing most of the art, I'm going to like it more than some average issued by a no-name artist of the month that they usually have. I enjoy the first part with Mike Allred art the most. I enjoy getting a rare glimpse into the lives of the Fantastic Four before they got their powers. Surprisingly, it's not an error we've seen very much about. 
And then there's the stuff about Alicia and Ben dating, with them teasing us by showing Alicia with a puppet master doll. It really would be cool if something came of that, but it never will. After Johnny's marriage to Alicia being revealed as a fraud, how cool would it be if they revealed that Ben's marriage to her is also a fraud because she was mind controlling him the entire time? They would never do that, but it would be pretty great. The second story I liked, uh, second best, even though it doesn't amount to much, and the appearance of the Serpent Society women makes even less sense than the appearance of Mole Woman over at the women's bachelorette party. So far, this seems to be a running theme in Dan Slott's run. Villains with very shaky or almost no motivation at all. There's no motivation at all for, here for the, the Serpent Society people to attack all these superheroes. And the third story, the actual wedding itself, was my least favorite. I derived no joy from seeing Ben and Alicia get married. The only time I ever found her interesting was when she, was, when she had moved on from Ben and was dating Johnny. Or when she's not in the book at all. So coming in the next issue, it's Doctor Doom, it's Galactus, it's 22 pages. I'm probably the most excited about the 22 pages. With these last two episodes being so long, I thought I might not be able to keep my Monday night schedule, but so far, so good. So that's all for now. If you have any questions about the Fantastic Four, about this podcast, or if you need relationship advice, you can email me at podcastff at gmail.com. You can download other episodes of iTunes or find them all at www.podcastff.podbean.com. You can find my other podcast, Comic Book Menace, now dead, at themenace.podomatic.com. So long, kids. This podcast is over. Okay.